Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October uh, the 25th. 2023, a Wednesday. Uh, some people be watching, some people be listening. It's an odd thing uh, to talk about photography uh, when you're watching or listening. We've done a number of shows on photography over the years, uh, always about what photographs appear to tell us that aren't always self-evident. Did one with Wendy Lauer on the political power of photography, another with Arthur Grace on what life really look like in Cold War Eastern Europe. We always assume that photographs tell a kind of truth, but of course, truth is a complicated thing. Um, did one with uh, a San Francisco East Bay photographer, a street philosopher, uh, philosopher and photographer, Geloe Concepcioni, on creating a confessional photo diary on Instagram. He put all that together in a new book called things you wanted to say but never did and done a couple of interviews over the years with the very distinguished South African photographer Roger Ballen and he has always argued that good photography should get underneath our skin and assault us. My guest today is less political than Ballen but in much in many other ways equally philosophical and profound. Um, uh, Anand Varma is a very distinguished East Bay photographer of nature, I guess, or maybe he'll correct me. Uh, and he has a new book out, National Geographic Invisible Wonders. It's just out in the last couple of weeks. It's a beautiful book. And Anand is joining us from his lab in Berkeley. Uh, Anand, all these books, and, and remember that everyone, some people will be listening to this, some people will be watching. So I don't want to go too heavy on the photography because... This is not a, a photography visual show. It's, a, it's an audio sure. show with video. But what can photography do that surprises people? We always take it for granted that photography tells the truth. But, of course, that's only the beginning of things, isn't it, Anand? I would say so, Andrew. I, I think what's so interesting to, about photography for me is its ability to extend our visual perception. I think that is the core theme of all of my work. That's the core theme of this book as well. It's like, how can photography, how can a camera show us what our eyes can't see or what our attention doesn't notice at first glance? Yeah, that's a fascinating idea because we trust our eyes, Anand, don't we? And yet I think what the great photographers remind us is that we probably shouldn't. Well, uh, I think it's it's a reminder that there's so many layers of beauty and complexity that we might miss at first glance. And so it's not, I wouldn't necessarily agree that our eyes are deceiving us. I just think that they're maybe letting us down from time to time. Uh, and, and it's not just our eyes, but our, our, our perception, our brains are filtering out all of this input. We've got busy lives. We've got Kind of overwhelming overstimulation and and so it's a survival mechanism to filter out all of that incoming stimuli and sometimes it helps for a photographer to remind us what we might be missing in in this kind of busy world of ours 
not only what we're missing, but what we don't see. And that's what the great photographers, of course, do. We, we use It's also bound up in language. We use the word wonderful all the time. <laughs> you have a nice lunch. People say, oh, that was wonderful. But of course, for you, um, Anand, in this, and, and I'm being slightly ironic here, in this wonderful new book, uh, Invisible Wonders, uh, you really reveal the the wonder you have at nature and many of us should have. You are, as, as one piece in National Geographic suggested, resetting wonder. What does wonder to you mean? Wonder is this feeling more than anything. It, it's, it's, it's an emotional experience when confronted with something, some phenomena that is larger than our perception of the world. When we're, when we're confronted by something that we don't understand that shows us that the world is bigger and more complex than we previously thought, we experience this feeling of awe or wonder that the core of it is this sense of opening, of saying, wait a minute, there's something here beyond my perception, my understanding, my assumptions of the world. And I think that is the magic of wonder is, is it's our ability, <clears throat> its ability to open our minds to new ideas and new relationships. I'm not sure if you're familiar with 19th century American philosophical movement, the transcendental movement, the work of people like Emerson and Thoreau, but their ideas come to mind. Uh, I, I assume Thoreau was a bit early to be able to take a, a camera to his lake but in a sense is what you're doing a um a high-tech version of transcendentalism i think in a way yes and i don't think wonder is limited to visual perception i think writers are able to evoke this feeling uh, musicians artists of all of all types for sure can expose us to ideas and uh and and feelings that expand our mind and expand our perception and that's that's certainly my goal with my photography yeah and we take it for granted of course that you could have a a transcendentalist poet or novelist or painter but what does it mean to be a, a transcendentalist photographer which is as you suggest what you are in some ways well i think it goes back to that idea that you brought up at the beginning of surprise like how how can photography surprise us and i think I've explored this idea of surprise in two ways. One, the first story I did that's that's a part of this book is was on mind controlling parasites. And so here's a subject that many people may have not have heard of. It's a very uh, strange esoteric corner of the biological world. Uh, and so you can present stories about weird exotic creatures that's one way to surprise people to say hey here is a creature you never knew existed uh the other way to do that is to take something very familiar uh, or mundane even right now we're working on chicken eggs one of the most <laughs> you you wouldn't think of that as an exotic subject but then you take the simple thing that many of us have in our refrigerator and uh you sh show the surprising complexity of what happens inside that shell so for example, we know that chickens come from eggs, but they don't look at all the same. And so when you stop to think about the magical transformation that happens from an egg yolk into a chicken, 
I think you're confronted with that same sense of wonder that you that I feel when I learn about a, a parasite that can control the mind of a crab or or of a spider. And so I kind of tackle it from both angles, the very exotic things that we never knew existed, but also looking at the very simple everyday um, objects we're all familiar with that might be honeybees or chicken eggs or jellyfish and saying, let's unpack this thing that we thought that was so simple and look at the complexity that's that's there in front of our eyes that we we forgot to pay attention to. Anand, you grew up in the woods, you uh, near, near Atlanta in Georgia, and you, when you were a teenager, you picked up your your father's old camera on a whim. Um, what did you discover when you did that? How how did how did you discover your so to speak vocation? You know, it was a bit of an accidental path for me. So I certainly never set out to be a photographer as a kid. I, I dreamed of being a scientist, I, and I I thought I wanted to be a scientist because my favorite memories as a as a kid was wandering around the creek behind my house growing up. And I thought, okay, the only way I can continue this lifestyle essentially of exploration and discovery that I loved as a kid was, was to follow science. And the first experience that sticks in my mind with photography is this moment at the end of high school, my senior year, I'm exploring Stone Mountain Park uh, outside of Atlanta with a, a close friend, Gene Henry, and we and we both have our little cameras that we borrowed from our dad, a little point and shoot macro camera. And I come across a garter snake, and I sneak up on it, seeing how close I can get. There's a little macro function on the camera, and I and I take a picture of the face of the snake. And the photograph itself is not that memorable. There's nothing particularly special. It's a little out of focus. Uh, it's not outstanding in any regards. And, but the reason I remember it is not the photograph, it's the reaction of my friend, Gene. He got so excited by this photograph. And we have the real snake. The snake was still there. We could have looked at the real thing, but instead we're obsessing over this photograph and all the details that's able to capture and all the scales and colors and textures that this photograph can capture. And that feeling that, wait, photography can be this way of sharing excitement, sharing discovery with other people. It was that feeling of connection and of shared excitement that really stuck with me. And I think that is one of the core reasons that I love photography today. I'm thrilled that we're talking with Anand Varma, uh, the author of National Geographic Invisible Wonders and one of, uh, one of the most innovative photographers around. Um, Anand, uh, I've spent some time in the South too. And in that culture, there's a great deal of affection for hunting. Is photography and particularly ph photographing nature the, 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 the Pacific form of hunting? I think there are some parallels. I have never been on a hunt myself. I suppose I've gone fishing. That's maybe there's a parallel there. But many of my friends have have been hunters and have described an experience that I think relates to photography. I mean, there's, there's a need to really understand and pay close attention to your environment. There's a need to understand your subject and how your subject thinks and moves and reacts. And so despite how you feel about uh, 
harming an animal uh, for the sake of uh, food or recreation. If, if we set that aside, the, the need to observe carefully and to understand this, this, this subject that you're pursuing, I think there are parallels there. Um, and, and I think that is one of the joys of photography is the sense of connection to the natural world you develop through this process of close attention and observation. And, and you mentioned earlier that when you were growing up, you dreamt of being a scientist until you, you had the perhaps transcendental experience of picking up <laughs> a camera. But aren't you, more than anyone I can think of who's certainly been on the show, aren't you on this border between art and science? And aren't you in your own way as much a scientist as any hardcore researcher? I would say I'm solid, I have solidly planted at the intersection of, of art and science. And that in itself has been an unexpected journey. As a kid, I identified with science and I was uh, not such a big fan of art. In fact, I had a kind of visceral aversion to art. My, my associations with art growing up were being dragged to art museums by my older sister and feeling not just bored, but feeling dumb <laughs> to go into these spaces and saying, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be looking at. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be feeling. And my reaction to that was a sense of judgment that there must be, this place is making me feel like I don't belong, which was very different than going into a natural history museum and seeing a giant dinosaur and thinking, wow, this is cool. And so I, I grew up with this sense that art is for other people and it's for people who think that I'm not good enough for them. And it took me a long time to uh, come up with my own definition uh, of art. And so on the other side, on the science side, yes, I thought science was who I was, what I could be when I grew up. And as I made this transition and recognizing actually through photography, I can be the kind of person that I imagined myself to be as a scientist, there was a little feeling of loss, almost a failure to say, I'm gonna give up on my childhood dream of being a scientist to pursue this other thing. And it actually took a while for those two paths to converge again, where I recognized as I worked on my story about honeybees, I got messages from scientists saying, hey, we're learning new things about honeybee behavior based on this video you made. And that's when this light bulb went off that, oh, I thought I had to leave behind my aspirations of science in order to be a photographer. I thought my job as a photographer, as a, even as a science photographer, was to document the discoveries of others. And almost by accident, I came across an opportunity where I could actually contribute new information through my images. And so now I see photography and science as a collaboration as, as a synergy as opposed to in competition. So I need to study the science, I need to understand the science of my subjects in order to take compelling images. And if I'm successful in taking compelling and surprising images, I may even be able to contribute new information. And that's really the foundation of this new initiative I'm, I'm working on now called Wonder Lab, where the science and photography are not in separate spaces and separate domains, but in fact, um, in in one place and in under one roof and i i would just clarify one thing i i i do think what i'm doing 
has a solid foot planted in science, I'm careful not to compare myself to, you know, the professors a mile up the hill who are, who are teaching biology, in Berkeley, biology yeah, and biology at UC Berkeley. I, I don't, I don't have the same level of qualifications. I didn't get a PhD. I, I don't think that I am able to contribute the same degree of understanding of our world as someone who does that full time. So I, I am careful not to say, hey, what I do is exactly the same as them. That said, I think science can be a bit more expansive in its definition. And so in my pursuit of understanding how the world works and communicating that, I think there is a solid foundation in science uh, and, a, and a solid background in science, but I'm also interpreting what I'm seeing and I'm trying to communicate that through my own subjective perception of the world. And I think that's where the artist in me contributes equally. Actually, those uh, those biologists uh, up the road at UC Berkeley, they, they should be so lucky to compare <laughs> to you, to be compared to you in all seriousness. And, and, and probably, what about photographers? Do sometimes photographers, when they see your work, do they perhaps dismiss it as science as opposed to art? Some I haven't. I, I haven't seen that particular um, criticism. Oftentimes, it's in the other direction. They see the photograph, and I've been, I've, I've had colleagues of mine say, "I didn't actually realize that was a real photograph. I thought that was a digital composition until I saw the behind the scenes of how you made that. I thought that was an illustration composed in Photoshop. So they, they saw the photograph and thought it was entirely art." And didn't recognize the the science, uh, the scientific underpinning, and the and the and the sort of uh, photographic component of it. So I've I've heard that that criticism. I haven't seen it dismissed by photographers yet as kind of I don't know. There could be maybe in in the in the more um, fine art photography space my work may be considered a little bit too literal perhaps and and uh too scientific to be considered fine art but uh, you know that's well you're you're, you're you're confusing or challenging boundaries which is what i think a good artist certainly an artist based in berkeley should be doing and has done over the years uh, and then you mentioned your wonder lab uh, in Berkeley. Tell me a little bit more about this. You've, in a sense, recreated nature or a kind of nature to take your photographs. Yeah. So Wonder Lab is where I'm sitting right now. I'm in, in a little corner desk area. We're, we're working on a bunch of construction projects at the moment. But uh, essentially, Wonder Lab, you know, I looked out in the world and I recognized in me, I care about photography, I care about science, and I care about education. And as a purely editor, editorial magazine photographer, I didn't see a place where I could combine these three pursuits. And so I decided I had to build it myself. And so what Wonder Lab is, is part photo studio, part biology lab, and part classroom, where I want to figure out new ways of documenting the natural world. I want to be able to contribute and collaborate with scientists along the way. And I want to be able to take others along the journey with me from uh, high school, elementary school kids and sharing a sense of wonder about the natural world to early career photographers and sharing 
the techniques of science photography that I've, I've been able to develop um, eventually into having a fellowship or mentorship program where we can host people long-term to be able to study and develop their own science communication, visual science communication techniques. It's good stuff. Um, Anand uh, Varma is the author of a new book, National Geographic Invisible Wonders. We can take a short break, Anand, now. I want to thank our sponsor, Liberties, and then I want to come back after the break and talk more specifically about the book. Uh, Liberties uh, is not photographic, it's all text, but also it gets under the skin. It's a wonderful new publication. Going to run a short ad for that, and then we'll be back in 30 seconds with Anand Varna, author of Invisible Wonders. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Anand Varma, the author of a wonderful new book, uh, National Geographic Invisible Wonders. Uh, Anand, uh, some people have described it as a coffee table book. Are you comfortable with that? I'm guessing you'd want it to be more than just something people browse through while they're having their cup of tea in the morning. Well, I don't know that I'm offended by a coffee table designation. Sure, it's a big <laughs> chunker of a photography book. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I introduce each chapter uh, with an example of my own work and how that relates to the theme of that chapter. And then the rest of the book is, is a curation of what I consider to be the best science photography today. And there's over 100 photographers included in this compilation. So it's not just your work. It's it's. That's right. That's right. So I'm. So the the book is divided into four chapters, and so the theme throughout all the chapters is how can photography show us what our eyes can't see. And the most obvious way you might uh, assume is through macro photography or macro micro photography, where okay, we can use microscopes to zoom into tiny tiny subjects, and we have a chapter on size. But that's not the only way that photography can show us new things. There's a chapter on time. And so uh, thinking about how uh, you know, photographic shutters, for example, we can freeze time, we can slow down time, we can speed up time through photography and change our perception of time through photography. There's a chapter on light. So how, how do you do that? Use... Sorry to jump in. How do you change people's perception of time through photography? Well, for example, there's a photograph. Uh, my story on hummingbirds, I think, is primarily an exploration of time. And there's uh, there's a little thumbnail there of a hummingbird shaking its uh, droplets off of its body. There's other images of fog machines that scientists use to study the airflow around hummingbird wings. And so this, for example, is a moment that you cannot perceive with your naked eye. I was sitting right there when this photograph is taken, I could see the hummingbird in front of me, but I can't perceive the beats of its wings, which are beating, in that case, about 40 or 50 times a second. The whirlpools of air, those vortices are forming and dissipating faster than my eyes can see. And in that case, 
the very short burst of light is what's freezing that time. Uh, in that image of a hummingbird shaking its its uh, droplets off, the, the rain droplets off of its body, that's actually a combination of a slow shutter with a very short duration flash. And so it's actually combining both a slower perception of time and a faster perception of time. And that and what that can do is show us time that in a way that not even a video camera can do. So it's not just slowing down time, it's actually combining two perceptions of time into the same physical space. And that allows us to see the trajectories of the water droplets at the same time that we see a crisp definition of, of the position of the bird's body. And I think that's, again, a, a part of the magic of photography that no other medium, at least in terms of uh, visual medium, I think can do in the same way. Uh, Anand, is, in a sense, are you, and, 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 and some of the other photographers in the, in the collection, are, are you giving us access into nature, which we wouldn't normally have in, in the context of trying to be like other species? Dogs, of course, have much better hearing than humans. Other animals have better sight, better perceptions. So are you granting us in an odd way a passport into other species and into nature itself? I, I think so. I, I partially agree with that. So I think I'm hoping to give people an experience of the natural world that they wouldn't have otherwise. I wouldn't say that I could pinpoint that perspective onto any other specific creature that I'm giving you the honeybees version of the world or the hummingbirds version of the world. Uh, that is an interesting pursuit that I'm interested in trying to explore, but I think it gets very tricky to to look at the world from a specific non-human animal's perspective. But I would absolutely agree that I'm trying to give people an experience of the world that they wouldn't have. But I wanna be careful in saying, I think the most powerful photographs are not those that are completely inaccessible experiences. To say, here's a thing that you will never get to see with your eyeballs mm. is less interesting and less powerful than hey here's a hint of what's there can you can you notice this the next time a honeybee lands on a flower in your garden or hummingbird flits by can my photograph teach you to look at that real world thing with your own eyeballs in a different way and of course you, you're not going to be able to see every detail that a photograph could capture in a, in a still frame but i think the real power of photography is getting us teaching us, inspiring us to look more closely with the tools that we do have. And I think that's that's really where the magic of photography lies. And, and I, I, I'm guessing that it goes without saying that there's a political dimension to, to your work and to this book, given the disappearance of species. Are you, in a sense, documenting species that might no longer exist, even sometimes by the time uh, people read the book? If so, it's somewhat incidental. And I think I want to be careful and thoughtful in how I articulate that. I am somewhat intentional in avoiding the politics around conservation or endangered species. And, and the reason is, I think, to get to a place where we're saying, I care about this hummingbird. I want it to exist in the world. There has to be 
a pre-existing sense of connection or empathy to that being. And prior to that, caring about the existence of hummingbirds, you have to have a curiosity about that creature. And even before that curiosity has to be the pure experience of paying attention to that thing. And so I actually want, I am most interested in operating at that upstream level of saying, hey, what is it that we pay attention to? What is it that we don't pay attention to? Can we learn new ways of having agency over our own attention? Because once you have that, then you increase your capacity for wonder alongside curiosity. That curiosity then leads to connection and empathy. And it's that empathy and connection that is the core foundation for wanting to save a species, wanting to save an ecosystem, wanting to save the planet. And so rather than working at that level, which many people, there are many amazing conservation photographers out there in the world who are doing incredible work, but to a degree, you're having to talk to an audience that already shares your values. If you're going to say, hey, this animal is threatened, work with me to protect it. Well, you're taking for granted that that person already shares your connection to that creature. And so I think there's work that needs to be done upstream of that to have people pay attention to the world around them. And to some degree, it's up to them. I think it's not up to me to tell you, here are the animals we need to save and here are the animals we don't have to care about. Here's what we need to prioritize. Here's what's less valuable. I think ultimately that's a decision we all have to make for ourselves, but we can't make that decision if we're not even paying attention. And so I think that's, that's how I would articulate the politics of my photography. And the, the transcendental element is, is, is interesting. Um, you note that you fell in love with both photography and nature growing up in the woods. In a way, is this career and the art science you practice, is it a way of maintaining that youth, maintaining that curiosity and wonder? I'm guessing that kids in particular love your photography. No, I think that's, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. I think what attracts me to photography is it gives me that sense of wonder and discovery that I think I became addicted to as a kid. And I think this is my way of reliving my childhood. And I think we're all born with that sense of innate curiosity around the world. And I think there's many paths in life that beat it out of you or that don't reward it. Mm. And so for me, it's about reconnecting to that sense of joy and pleasure that comes with learning about the world. And so uh, I, I think that's that's absolutely right. It's, it's about reliving my childhood for sure. Well, you've done a good job. Most people aren't able to relive it, but I'm guessing that the kids you bring into the lab or you speak to or pick up the book, they're, they're particularly, uh, this is the right word, infatuated with the images that you provide. Is that your experience? I think that's about right. I feel like the most in <laughs> the most excited audiences that I've presented to in person tend to be fourth, fifth, sixth graders who just have so much energy and so much curiosity about the world. Uh, it's it's like speaking to a group of 
of fifth graders is like being at a rock concert. <laughs> Everybody's screaming and wiggling and like there's so much energy and excitement about every new thing that you have to talk about, uh, whether it's gross or weird or cool. Um, and uh, it's hard to find an audience that's more rewarding to engage with than, than kids of that age. But I'm guessing also that this work um, reinvigorates elders as well. It's not just kids who love this stuff. No, no. And, and I think I try to create work that is relatable to the broadest audience as possible. And I think it's very rewarding to hear from friends or readers or audience members of somebody who's saying, hey, I shared this with my two-year-old granddaughter <laughs> and the granddaughter just wants to see more hummingbird videos. I'm like, that's awesome. Cross-generational uh, impact and engagement. That's, that's, uh, that's a sense of strong validation for me to be able to reach audiences across a wide variety of backgrounds and um, interest levels. So, and, and you mentioned earlier that you fell in love with photography as a, a 10 year old or an eight year old in the woods with a point and shoot camera. Today, you set this lab up, you have quite sophisticated um, equipment and some of your work, as you suggest, looks as if it's Photoshop. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, does it require having a lab and an extremely expensive hardware and software to do the kind of photography you do? Um, I guess it depends on how you define my photography. It's a path that I've chosen because I particularly like engineering challenges. And so to me, it's extra fun and stimulating to try to come up with ever more complex systems for trying to see something new. And so every project becomes more complex and requires more engineering and more software and more uh, sophisticated technology. That's kind of just because that's what's fun and interesting to me. At the core of my photography is trying to see new things. And I don't think you need a fancy video camera or a lab or a bunch of microscopes to do that. I think you have to have a curiosity about the world and the willingness to poke and prod and look where others haven't. And that can be under a log behind your house. It could be in the park down the street. Um, so I think the philosophy of exploration is absolutely accessible to actually literally create some of the images behind me or in the book, it can often take uh, a pile of, of gear and, and a lot of um, access to specialized technology, but that's in some ways less critical to the, to the effort, I think. It's ironic that you, we always want more technology. It's not just you, it's anyone in photography, videography, you want more tech, more hardware, more sophisticated software to produce simpler images or simpler kinds of art. Uh, and then finally, what advice would you give? I, you know, I have a daughter, she's a little older now, but she, she used to love to go to the, the zoo with a camera and just endlessly take photographs. What advice would you give to people with kids 
orchids or, or even you know people who are just into photography who who, who want to maybe not be an anandvana that's a hard thing to do but to just go out and and and, and reset their own particular their personal wonder i think it's about following your curiosity and i think it doesn't mean you need to save up for some crazy trip to Africa. I think it's about exploring what you have access to and reflecting on the images that you're taking. I think that's often a, a mistake that we make. We go to the zoo, to the park, we take all these images and we don't stop to think about, what, how do I feel about these? What, what's working for me? How, what, which of these images makes me feel something and why is it making me feel that way? That process of experimentation and reflection, I think, is how we can better understand our own relationship to a camera. It's, I think, for me, the core of how I improve my photography, but it's a way of understanding ourselves as well and, and how we move through the world. It's a way of ex understanding what excites us and what interests us. And so I, I think a camera is a wonderful tool to explore what excites you in the world. And I think it's that combination of following your curiosity and reflecting on the images that you've taken that uh, can really unlock the, the power of photography, in my opinion.